welcome one and all to Discovery, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official, unofficial Star Trek Lower Decks podcast. My name is Matt, and joining me as always is Pete. Ahoy, ahoy, Pete. It's warp time. Discovery, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek, featuring Lower Decks for episode 102, Envoys, comes to you now via Remote Return Autopilot. And news from the fleet before this episode leaves orbit. Have to start by mentioning Pete. Uh, of course, we have just recently wrapped Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. episodes on that podcast there. And uh, as as the one show sunsets, so is rising our, uh, our lengthy Star Trek voyage here. Yeah, seven years in the making to finish up the other night, really. A wistful time for old fantastic geek uh the voice of the marvel cinematic universe and here in the star trek universe trying to do the same thing a bit more locally you know star trek brought in these united states new star trek that is to say pete although i won't say new trek and you because that's what the haters say uh but there is sometimes some some hate some unhappiness with cbs all access as a company as an app etc uh part of the great brand rebrand coming this summer scratch this fall scratch <laughs> now move to winter 2021 is the possibility that the whole cbs all opera uh, cbs all access operation will be renamed what pete paramount plus because that will solve all the problems uh What's what's kind of weird, I mean, I guess on the one hand, it goes with the convention of streamers with Plus after it, but like, when Disney Plus did it, it's because there's a whole thing in Disney culture about plussing things up that comes from Walt Disney himself, or came rather, past tense. Uh, Apple TV Plus, okay, it's like a, a plus to the Apple TV thing that they've already done. Uh, whatever. However you're going to name this, let's just hope that, you know, that... Things like the app works consistently. Also in news, Pete, last week I was excited to say that the CBS All Access app for iPhone now allowed uh, screenshots, which I think is an important thing in this age of sharing. Uh, update to the app in the last week. Now you can no longer do screenshots. Uh, and we've heard from some people like James on Twitter uh, that have continued problems with their versions of the app, whether it's you know iPhone or Apple TV or just you know acknowledging that there's lots of versions of cbs all access out there on different devices but all of them still not working properly there is no cbs all access pr problem that will not be fixed by paramount plus pete on a pr positive note uh read pop which is the company that does uh, new york comic-con emerald city con uh c2e2 things like that has been doing an online uh metaverse uh, digital convention. Uh, they've had two Star Trek panels, one for Lower Decks, one for Star Trek Picard. Uh, the Lower Decks one with Mike McCann and a bunch of the uh, a bunch of the behind the scenes people, writer, producer, artist, that kind of thing. And um, the the Picard one was uh, three of the actors. Both panels well produced. I think better outings than what San Diego Comic Con had given us digitally. Bit of a learning curve there, maybe read pop a bit superior in that way um but the lower decks one in particular great insight into the process great rapport amongst you know executive producer and creator and his supervising director and the the writer and the artist and whatnot and it was a really 
interesting insight into the chummy, professional, enthusiastic production that is Lower Decks. In the wake of the heartbreaking but understandable cancellation of New York Comic Con, our con, uh, you know, that we've attended a multitude of times, it's good to know that there are options to do this and do it well online. So that makes me super hopeful for October. Pete, in terms of production timeline, that uh, Lower Decks panel did talk uh, about how Mike McMahon is in the process of uh, writing the finale. Animation has continued at a slightly lower state and uh, and all that. So certainly new, uh, new Lower Decks coming, I would imagine, at some point in 2021. And my goodness, the enthusiasm that Mike McMahon has for Star Trek for this production, it, it just came across in that panel, uh, which, by the way, I will be linking to in the podcast description. With that, let's get to the Ready Recap. Program complete. Enter when ready. On the USS Cerritos, a sentient light ball enters the ship, interacting with Mariner and Tendi. Supplicate yourselves! But Mariner tackles it. In order to keep itself out of a containment pod, she bargains for a purple tricorder, Mariner does, and an energy crystal. Now the light ball is so small that it is no bother at all. Later, Boimler tells the ladies he's got the sweet job of piloting Klingon General Corin down to the planet. It's a compliment that he's earned. Boimler goes to the shuttle. Okay, I want to say this right. The shuttle Yosemite. And Mariner's there to pilot with him. She fights the general in ritual combat because they're old friends. They did gray ops back in the day. They land on Tulgana 4 via a landing code. And after the ensigns disembark the shuttle, Corin promptly steals it. And due to Tulgana's protective ion field, they can't get help from the ship to get the shuttle back. The two search for the general in the Klingon, Ryson, and Andorian districts on the planet. Boimler is ill-equipped to deal with a sexy-time Anabaj, distrustful Andorians, and a thieving Vendorian shapeshifter. It's a day of failures for Boimler, who considers leaving Starfleet. Mariner consoles him, and she seems to drop the ball when it comes to a follow-me-to-my-gingerbread-house Ferengi type. Still, they ultimately find the shuttle and deliver the very drunk General Corin as planned. Meanwhile, on the ship, Rutherford is wrapping up a solid week of adjusting power cables in the Jeffries tubes. He loves it and would love to keep his promise of watching the Pulsar with Tendi. She wants to watch it with a friend, but now he's ready to switch careers. He tells Chief Engineer Billups the bad news, and the Chief is happy for him. You be you. Rutherford tries out command with Commander Ransom. The holotech bridge simulator shows disastrous results in scenarios both extreme and mundane. In trying medical, Rutherford has a handle on the mechanics of the body, but he has a dangerous bedside manner. Next stop, security. He does well with the smorgasbord simulation via help from his implant. Success! But still, he misses those Jeffrey tubes. He tells security chief Shax the bad news, and the chief is happy for him. In the bar, Boimler razzes Mariner in front of other junior officers, given that she did not know of the Ferengi. Meanwhile, Rutherford apologizes to Tendi. They can't watch the Pulsar since he's back in engineering. It's fine. She can watch with a friend on a pad in the tubes. Later, we see Mariner FaceTiming with the Ferengi. Thanks for the ruse and for helping get Boimler's bad day back on track. 
Red alert. All hands stand to battle stations. With that red alert, Pete, let's move to a threat analysis. What's first? The trans-dimensional energy creature, Matt. I completely appreciated this, you know, thinking back to the motion picture, what with Ilea being snatched off the bridge and all the other times we get these entities and to lampoon it just makes too much sense. I'm reminded as well of the second season uh, TNG episode, I believe it was entitled The Child, where a trans-dimensional energy being uh, impregnates Troy. Yes, yes. Uh, that, of course, a leftover story from Star Trek Phase Two, the sequel series that was unmade. Um, yes, this is a funny opening. Yes, as much as this is action-adventure, as much as we said last week that it's kind of like, you know, these are like 48-minute TNG episodes, but compressed down to you know 22 minutes with some yucks along the way yes this is funny and all that however let's not lose sight of the fact that it's another example of mariner knowing what to do in a strange situation so it kind of serves serves her character being propped up while being funny and obviously ultimately kind of a throwaway thing in klingon general corinne here we hit the standard trope of the Klingon warlike. Uh, there's a connection between him and Mariner. Uh, too much blood wine, likes to fight people. But I kind of like that he's missing most of the episode and they're trying to find him and then he's found passed out in front of the embassy. Yeah, it's a fun problem for the episode, for the A story to try and solve. Uh, however, Pete, it does come with some warnings, okay? Boimler, unconvinced as to uh, the, 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 the benefits of drinking in excess. And a, a gross and appropriately gross, a gross couple of seconds when uh, Corinne throws up into the air and onto his face, uh, throwing up presumably mostly wine. But uh, Pete, slow and steady wins the race, one drink at a time there. The taxor is one of many threats that we find along the way here. Uh, the, I must admit the female feces inside feces that Boimler says that would anger anyone. <laughs> um, I guess proof to be more like Pete, if Boimler can remember the old officer of your Saru, uh, who had learned, you know, 87 languages or something like that. Of course, they don't talk much about the Discovery crew. Um, but, you know, certainly a funny moment there. Um, and, and, I don't know, that Taxor, another example of a baddie that would be tough to do as makeup, but is easy to draw and color and all that. Mm -hmm. As with the Anabage, the, uh, what's the, the dinosaur uh, that has the, the hood thing kind of spread um, and, and sprays uh, acid or gunk like in uh, Jurassic Park. I think there. that's the Dilophosaurus. Yes, yes. Um, and uh, looking for some uh, couple time as well. Yeah, and I mean a fun – the, the 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 sensual openness in the 23rd and 24th centuries something that star trek has mined a lot over the years for it to be a turn into her being a weirdo alien um it's a funny moment you know her with the the whatever the spitting gills out and you know 
he's a naughty boy, naughty boy, thinking of Jamaharan. Like it's 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 a truly funny moment and a reminder that this is a universe populated with more aliens than maybe we usually get out of live action. And another example of Boimler's foibles this episode. It's predictable, but appreciated at the same time that Mariner knew it was a Ferengi, not a Bolian, that she's chummy with Quimp. Uh, really like the scene at the end there where he was just doing her a solid so that she could build Boimler up. And it also it also fed my theories that we will discuss in a little bit. Uh, and of course, Pete, ending here on the Ferengi, okay, an unfortunate truth that in the 24th century, they still prize the Latinum. Rewind to our 21st century. A big thanks to those who support us on Patreon.com slash Fantastic Geek. Send in a little Latinum our way to help cover those bandwidth and storage costs that we do accrue throughout the year. Everybody who contributes gets access to exclusive content in those Jeffrey's tubes uh, can't contribute at this time. Get yourself over to Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating. Takes a second. Uh, number of stars. Uh, leave us a review. Takes a little bit longer, but all equally appreciated. Pete, as we set long-range sensors ahead to try and find some theories. Here's one that came to me when I watched this episode for the fourth time since Thursday. Okay, so we have uh, Mariner who is dreaming of events of Star Trek II, you know, Dune Sea and stuff like that. Uh, she knew General Corinne back in the day. Here's my theory, Pete. We've discussed before how she appears to be the same age as Boimler. He, Boimler says it in this episode, but she's got, gone up and down in rank. She has, you know, all this experience, all this knowledge. What if, Pete, she's a time traveler? What if she's from the Department of Temporal Investigations sent back to help make Boimler great again for the first time? That would certainly fit into the off-the-books gray ops she's done before, maybe with Corin. I mean, it's, it's a possible avenue they could go down. I definitely like the idea that, you know, it's cartoon Star Trek, and oh no, it's Rick and Morty guy, so the jokes are going to be about poopies, and this is not going to be thoughtful. And yes, this is a comedy. Yes, there's some, you know, there's some basic humor to it. But I love the idea that maybe we are building towards something that's really, maybe not quite mind-blowing, but something where you say, oh my goodness, I had no idea that this was, was connecting into Star Trek in such a large way. The trans-dimensional energy creature having spent most of itself on a purple-striped tricorder and, of course, you need batteries, goes into Captain Freeman the only time we see her in this episode. Did it go into her? Did it fizzle out? Is it inside her? What's what there? Well, okay, first time I saw it, I kind of... I may have even misseen it as, and it bounces off of her, which it does not. It does appear to um, either fade away into her or, you know, fade away as it hits her or go into her. I'm reminded of the, you know, storyline literally seeded at the end of Discovery season one, then going into season two about a similar energy ball 
uh, inside Tilly and turning into uh, a rather significant plot point in the first uh, first half of Discovery season two. So could it be a thing? Yes. If I'm uh, Mike McMahon sitting in the writer's room, if I'm any of the writers and looking at Discovery scripts or, or, or whatever it might be, do we want to have two energy balls going into two female characters in, you know, two different seasons of two different shows and it end up being a brain parasite that takes her over or something like that. I feel like if that was the original intent, it might've been waved off, but I think it's a good theory to keep an eye out for. There's another command ensign, this Castro who has served on the enterprise, Matt, we've had that bait that we're going to have some legacy characters. Is this how it could potentially happen? Uh, it certainly could be. I mean, we saw in the first episode and this one too, to a slightly lesser degree, but we saw how the show is happy to name drop almost to excess. I do. I want to highlight almost because I think it's all part of the fun where, you know, they are on the second place, the second class of ships, not the tippity top, the enterprises, etc. Um, I, on the topic of legacy characters returning, I almost wish I didn't hear that theory because I don't want to get my, I don't want to get my, my anticipation to such a height that, you know, that it's like, well, if it isn't uh, Patrick Stewart coming back in a full, you know, TNG episode, the, the best TNG episode ever, except 22 minutes and on the Cerritos and animated, you know, you can kind of get ahead of yourself, you know, set your expectations a tad lower, uh, I'm saying to myself. But that certainly is an entry point. You hook up with that ensign and all of a sudden they need to go to the Enterprise E. I mean, there, there's your natural jumping off point. Okay, so the nature of Rutherford at this point, two episodes in, he's got the cybernetic implant. Did he actually spend a solid week in the Jeffries tubes, or was that hyperbole? I, I think originally we're supposed to have a question there in our minds. I read it as he spent... He spent every workday for a solid week working in there, uh, maybe even overtime because he loves it so much. I don't literally think that it was like, all right, staff meeting and main engineering. Hey, where's Rutherford? Oh, right. He's in Jeffrey's Tube Junction A23. You know, I don't think he's sleeping in there. So I think that it's it's hyperbole if taken literally, but but maybe even more than, you know, five days at eight hour shifts, that kind of thing. What is your Tendy Rutherford ship name, Matt? Is well, it Tutherford? Is it Rendy? Or might I propose Tender? <laughs> uh, I do like the name Tender. However, I hereby declare my intentions to, to not be for them as a couple. And here's what? why. Here's why. First of all, it's now two episodes in a row where... And certainly in this episode where Tendi uh, is not putting out those romantic vibes, you know, she's, oh, oh, you can't watch it with me. It's not the disappointment of first date canceled. It's, I was just, what did she say? I was just looking to watch this with a friend, right? And she kind of hammers that home, that's hammered home softly, multiple points in the episode. She's just looking for friends. Add to it, if I may. And, you know, I know this is all canonical Star Trek, but also this is, you know, Star Trek the cartoon, it's not the same as the time Riker is in the 
the psychiatric hospital and what is reality it's christopher nolan before he was christopher nolan meets star trek in Riker goes mad you know but you think of the history of orions as especially orion women as you know especially uh vigorous and high appetites for the physical and all that uh, to me it's a more interesting character for her to be you know nope i'm here to do a job i'm here to make friends it's not that there is this boiling pot of 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 lust it's just she's looking for friends you know we've seen rutherford who was the one ensign last week he has his eye on a new ensign this week i got no problem with rutherford looking out there to find to find love in the heart or love in the head uh but i really think the tendy is not interested and that to me that's a more interesting dramatic arc that's going to be sorry rutherford i'm just not interested really liked the uh, addressing of switching divisions done in this episode. We've seen it with Jordy, with Worf, and it's never been talked about. It's never been a thing. And I also really enjoyed the the falsity of, uh, they're going to be mad. No, we love it. Go, go do what you want to do, man. Or we just want you to be happy. And if you're not going to be good in this division, you make the whole ship and Starfleet better if you go to the other one. Yeah, I think that welcoming spirit is very Star Trek, is very Starfleet. It's very best of the best, even though this isn't the best of the best Starfleet ships uh, that are out there. Um I think that the 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 dual fake out of I'm really angry, but I'm happy for you. I mean, there you're leaning into kind of the world of animation, the spirit of it a bit. To me, it's not it's not as incongruous as it might seem in a live action setting. And it's funny you mentioned Jordy. I remember about a month ago I went down a click hole on Memory Alpha, and it's not just headcanon. It was literally in the minds of the writers for Jordy, particularly when you get to Relics, the Scotty episode. The writers had, uh, so I guess you could say as their headcanon, but I feel like that's slightly more important than, you know, what I thought when I was 10. Um, but they had in their headcanon, Jordy took the, took the promotion to engineering to advance his career to eventually get to a command position to get to a captaincy. It was just, I've gone as far as I can go, you know, as, as the blind pilot, let me move to the next position. And, you know, I know that we see some, there's stuff in potential futures and stuff in Star Trek online and whatnot where he's a captain. But this idea that he is somebody who was prepared to jump from division to division, obviously not to the degree that Rutherford did, but somebody who was willing to switch departments to advance his career and his interests. The old waistcoat dress uniform rears its head in this episode, updated obviously with this late stage next generation uh uniform uh could we get the the skort uh long after matt oh i mean first of all I, it was nice to see the return of the tng era dress uniform i think that whether you're talking tng or lower decks a belt would really kind of kind of class things up a little bit more as for the skort i mean this is an episode that had a lorian that's more in species uh, in a quick background uh, role, they had one of the bird people from uh, the, you know, TAS uh, yesteryear episode. I would, Pete, I would be willing to put five bars of latinum down on the table right now to guarantee we're going to see a male in a skort before <laughs> this first season is done. 
the pantheon of species in the the uh tolgan uh districts here you know little quonos we've got uh they had the ricin one that had the uh big fertility idol that uh picard has on his desk they had the veiny brainies the the kalons the the guy that comes to uh the enterprise that uh meets loxana and then wants to be euthanized um and and there's the controversy there uh really effective within comedy less so drama yeah insofar as they need to be doing everything from scratch which again is something mentioned in that lower decks panel that's that's worth watching you know why not go back and you know if you're if you're an illustrator if you're an animator it probably gets a little boring to be like and now i'm going to draw my 50th you know round-faced human and then select a human skin tone um you know throw some ridges in there open up star trek encyclopedia or go to memory alpha um talk to some of the people who have more star trek knowledge than you on the production and get some of those deep references not for the purposes of being cute not for the purposes of you know ooh, update on morn but just to say this is a this is a galaxy that's going to be doing more than reusing makeup that you already made for the pilot because you better use it again because you need somebody sitting at quark's bar um and really kind of revel in all the species all the weird designs and whatnot that uh, that the episode can bring the training simulation and the gag there of whatever they run into all of the simulated crew have blood across their faces (laughs) it's just (laughs) it's it's peak holodeck training stuff that again could never ever be addressed on any of the other shows and then add into it that we have a kindergarten and a pre-k and those children have been vented into space now all the children on the ship have been vented into space it's it's priceless and did you catch the detail on the uh, on the Connor Ops yeah, panel? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. There's all these little there's all these little dots meant to be absolutely. the children. You know, it's just it's again it's I'm like look at this way. If this was a live action episode, you know, obviously this is being played for a, a comedic tone, live action or not. But would you really ask your animators like and now draw little dots to represent children dying in space uh, versus you know it's animated. It's a quick throwaway thing and it just adds. It adds to the humor. By the way, Pete, speaking of how things are animated, okay, I got to put on my my engineering yellows here for a second. Um, the warp core itself appears to be vertically oriented, okay, which is the more modern look. However, there's no way that it has all the height to it that you'd have in a Galaxy class ship. Can I accept that, or must I must I tweet at Mike McMahon to say this is somehow wrong? You need to accept it because it's Star Trek. It's all Star Trek, Matt, which might be the Janeway protocol. <laughs> yeah, I know I read a great article. Um, Crumb. I wish I had kept track of where it was from. Might have been, I want to say maybe Collider, but somebody had proposed different thoughts uh, as to what the Janeway protocol could be referencing you know is it ramming speed because there's episodes where she did that is the is it you know is the janeway protocol to 
uh, pick a direction and stick with it because that was the overall, you know, we're going to find a way home. Um, well, it's not it, maintain course. That sounds like maintain course. Well, I think, I, I think the proposal was more like have a plan and stick with it if it's a good plan or something like that. But again, part of what's part of the fun of this show is they really are loading in a lot of these references. Also, obviously, you know, a Janeway post return timeline here you can have a reference like that where you know so much of so much of existing star trek is off limits for kind of in-universe uh cultural references when you're talking about discovery being earlier in in the timeline but you have stuff like that and you get to sit and go what what is the janeway protocol how how did she act across all those episodes and it just adds to the fun it's inevitable that something will be said for the first time on lower decks and then either in Discovery, the furthest set uh, show at this point, or one of the other ones, gain a mention. Yeah. And one, I mean, one can certainly imagine that's the case. What comes to my mind in terms of timeline is maybe Picard season two having some kind of reference to it. Um, Discovery being so far in the future, there could be a reference, but I think that we'd be like 938 years in the future. You're really stretching right. to mention, or I guess it'd be less so since it's Cerritos to Discovery, but you know, that, that kind of thing. But, you know, can we lock in a Picard themed short trek sometime in 2021 that mentions, you know, mentions all the great support ships throughout the years and da, 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 and the Cerritos. I want him to full on dock with the Cerritos man and, and we'll get Tawny Newsome in there in, in live action. Uh, Shax, the Bajoran security chief here references the profits. Really nice touch. It is. And now Pete, I have a couple of questions about Shax for you. First of all, uh, slightly, you know, kind of, kind of gray hair, a slightly older guy, only a Lieutenant, can we assume maybe he joined Starfleet, you know, not at age 20, particularly given, you know, Bajor and occupation and all of that? And then follow-up question, why doesn't he get the eye fixed? Is that some sort of war wound showing that he he took the Cardassians out who took his eye? I think they've got to be related, as in the best they would. I wonder, you know, I wonder if we, do we ever get an explanation like that? I, I think there's the urge to look at, all of the eight crew members as kind of the crew, which is true in terms of the organization chart, but the way the show is set up, those you know more senior officers are the supporting cast that don't necessarily require as much depth, but time will tell. And then the pulsar at the end, I thought was the perfect way to end this episode. It gives you both the sense of hope and wonder. These things inevitably invariably star trek with that let's go to hailing frequencies hailing frequencies open sir well pete i'm glad that as we record this you and i are both in our dress uniforms because all attention on deck here comes admiral fred hello matt and pete and all listeners to fantastic geek this is fred from the netherlands with some feedback for star trek lower decks season one episode two I already liked this episode much better than the first, but that was mainly because I knew what I could expect. So 
I took the attitude of watching a satirical, comical Star Trek comic with a lot of references to the Star Trek universe, with all kinds of tropes, which are nice memories of the, let's say, normal series. And if you look at it in that way, it becomes quite different. I liked the bickering between Boimer and Mariner, reminded me a little bit of McCoy and Spock, or sometimes even Spock and Kirk. The trope with the three-dimensional energy being that goes through the hull of a spaceship is not new at all, but the way Mariner dealt with it, it was completely surprising. Could not imagine any Starfleet officer that would do it like that. I found Anton Rutherford's storyline a little lame. Of course we knew when he would go to other departments within the ship, he would land up in engineering at the end. His command simulation of course reminded us a little bit of the Kobayashi Maru. This Mariner is so annoying and teasing. I really wonder if this will stay the whole first season like that. At this moment I enjoy it, it's nice, especially in contrast to Boimler, but if it goes on like this, it could be tiresome and too much of a trope then. Okay, that was all for now. Greetings, all the best, Fred from the Netherlands. Pete, really interesting take there from Fred, Boims and Mariner, the new McCoy and Spock. The classic bickering officers. Uh, I like it. I like the idea here. I, I also expect at some point, though, you know, they're the B team. We'll see them get more to do in terms of duties. So to see that happen, you know, Mariner being the one who gets herself in trouble, Boimler being the incompetent uh, who just can't be pushed forward. Um, yeah, I, I really like the idea. Yeah, I think insofar as the concept of the show is that they are the B team, I would agree. Uh, that said, so much of the first episode had to you know set the table in terms of who these characters are, are why they're there. This is kind of the first normal episode where they really are the B team. And then I would imagine you know you set that pattern over a couple of episodes. Then if you're going to mix things up in in whatever capacity, you know, mid season you have that ability to to do you know, and now they're different. And now it's the the Tendi and Tendi's mom episode, and the other characters pull to the back, that sort of thing. In regards to Rutherford, yeah, it's uh, a, a storyline that you could predict, but it seems oddly comforting. I like the uh, comparison to the Kobayashi Maru, except of course that everybody gets bloodied and you know all the children on the ship die, and that literally never happened. <laughs> Yeah, I think I know Fred had used the word predictable, and I don't think that he was uh, trying to assign a, a positive or negative aspect to that word. It was just merely descriptive. I, I do think after these two episodes of Lower Decks, and maybe this is just viewed through the lens of the world at large and everything's so crazy, but also everything the same at the same time, the predictable nature is comforting in, in a way that 
I think is in line with what the show wants to do. You know, it's not it's not Discovery showing you a war where we didn't know there was a war before or or things of that sort. Really questioning the ideals of Starfleet. It's it's predictable and comforting while being new and dynamic. Well, Pete, let's keep this Star Trek Lower Decks conversation going. How can people be in touch with you on Twitter? You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R-11,423 followers. Can't be wrong. And while I'm personally on Twitter, looking back lost, do be in touch with the podcast. Comment on FantasticGeek.com. Check us out on Twitter, Instagram, Gmail, where we are Fantastic Geek as well. But wait, Pete, there's more. Facebook.com slash Fantastic Geek, all one word with the PH, like it today. If you're listening on the Pop Culture Podcast feed, we will be back to talk about the uh, season retrospective of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. next Saturday. If you're here for Lower Decks, we'll be back on Sunday as we talk episode 103. With that, Pete, I will say adios to all our listeners and give you the final word. I shall make a feast of your misery. 